We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. What is this book? John Steinbeck's 12th novel that he ever released. Let's talk about breaking it down today. We'll start out with a little bit of a spoiler-free discussion, and let's jump into some analysis and say what this book means to us. Coming up on the Codex Cantina. Welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una. And I'm excited crypto. This is this is fun. The structure of this book is very interesting. The characters that are there in the beginning aren't necessarily the ones that are there at the end. We travel through multiple generations. It's a book that evolves and we see the times and technology change through this. It's a very ambitious project with a very simple concept. Breaking down the one story mankind has to offer according to john steinbeck <laughs> oh we only have one story ouch yeah so what did his first 11 books mean they were all right. practice warm-ups right, right. <laughs> he's like oh well, I, I use these other stories for my previous 11 books but now i want to tell the real one story <laughs> i think stephen king would disagree but i don't know that's a pretty good argument east of eden does give a lot to the human condition so this book was originally intended to be more autobiographical. And I think that explains a lot because it became fiction, right? You have John Steinbeck, one of the most popular writers at the time. And if you read into his biography, you'll see he didn't just do books. He was involved in movies and screenplays and stuff like that. And what happened was he's finally opened up a very private individual, finally opening up to the public. And, and we finally get to see a little bit of what's behind the scenes, but what's interesting is the way that he takes two families, duality, right? And we've got the Trasks and we've got the Hamiltons. And he takes the Hamiltons and models them after his own family, you know, in terms of the father representing his grandfather that settled the land in America. And then you've got the Trasks, who he calls his symbol family. And they're the ones that take the story and collide and drive and just breathe a huge amount of beauty into what is some gorgeous writing and very simplistic concepts that humans still struggle with today. And kind of keeping with the theme of autobiographical, there's been rumors that he actually wrote this for his two sons to kind of keep with that duality theme. And if you have looked at our videos before of like the before you read, I think that the journal that you could read in conjunction with this would be a great tool to help you understand why he did what he did in this novel. And it's not that large. It's only like 100 pages. So it wouldn't be that too uh, taxing to read along with this story. And one of the things that definitely, that's funny, one of the things, there's two major things that impacted him as he was writing this story. <laughs> he lost one of his best friends and actually his wife filed for a divorce and revealed some infidelities that she had. So many critics have argued that he may have been struggling of what is my purpose and what is going on and just reevaluates his life as he's writing this to give us a very honest work. It feels almost like this might have been a therapy session for Steinbeck as he's going through all these existential crises. 
And he's thinking, this is a way that I can teach other people that they're human, I'm human, we all kind of go through this together. There's this thing called good and evil, and it's in all of us, is one way to look at it. This felt, to to your point, therapeutic. It was probably similar to how Dostoevsky was going through with his brothers K when he lost you know, his son and wrote that book as he probably struggled with life and why does life struggle like this, it, you know, Steinbeck was uh, Episcopalian and heavily religious at that, too. It's, it's written through his whole works. You can see that he, he was definitely a man of faith. But you can see he was very honest with the way other people may have looked at religion, too. And I think he takes this book and takes the Bible, specifically the book of Genesis. I think people will say, you know, this is an allegory of. It's not an allegory, first of all. And I think he, he injects the themes, though of what's happening in Genesis and this duality in Genesis too, right? You had Cain and Abel, you got Esau and and Jacob, and then Joseph and his brothers, I think is in Genesis as well. But you've got duality and a preference for one over the other throughout this. So what he does is he takes these concepts and he has people struggle with it. He has these families evolve together from 1860 up until World War I, and you see almost a century of time pass by and the way these people have struggled and retackled the same problems over and over again. It's actually quite interesting. The beautiful thing is when then people are referencing that this is a retelling of Genesis, what Steinbeck has done here is he's taken two of the main characters, Cain and Abel, and he keeps that duality of brothers throughout the entirety of this story. So who are Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel are the son of Adam and Eve. Cain is a farmer and Abel is a shepherd. Both are going to give gifts to God. God is going to prefer Abel's gift over Cain's. So Cain kills Abel. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read the Bible, it's been around a little while. (laughs) And then God takes revenge and curses him to wander the earth with a horrendous mark. And what I like about East of Eden is how it allowed me to relook at that story because I've obviously read it. I've obviously heard it, but it's never really clicked with me, right? Why do we allow Cain to just live and he's cursed, but no one's allowed to, you know, cause harm to him, right? And there's a lot of different interpretations to that. And I think this story allowed me to relook at what does choice mean? And what does it mean when we have evil or witness or, or, or experience evil and how we react to that? And this is a story that I think explores not necessarily good conquering evil and not evil conquering good. It's, it's an internal turmoil that we experience inside ourselves And Steinbeck wraps this all up in what I think is probably the easiest classic literature book for you to pick up and read if you've never read classic literature before. This this book should not intimidate you at 600 pages. It flows, and it's very easy to understand what are ultimately some very personal conflicts that we still have today. And to keep on with that, I think that if you are studying the history of the Bible and you're studying the passages and the literature and the lore and everything, and you are also struggling, like maybe both Una and I have, of why would God do this? I think that this story kind of helps fill in some of those gaps of that. I don't think it was meant to ever teach us that humans are all good and all evil, that we do sometimes walk this gray line and maybe help fill in some of the ideas of why Cain does what he does, what happens to him, and maybe how we can avoid that in the future. 
So let me do a quick plot summary just to kind of refresh some of the major beats, at least with the Trask Hamilton family, because with 600 pages, you could get real lost. But the story opens up with the creation and setting and narration that's clearly evoking this duality in the story. Adam and Charles are the two sons. And just like Crypto explained with the story of Cain and Abel, they give gifts to their father, and the father prefers Adam's gift. Jealous Charles starts to resent his brother. He even goes to violence and must win at all costs and almost brutally kills his brother if his brother hadn't escaped and hidden before his brother could do it. Adam is eventually sent off to the army by his father, and when he returns to his alleged war hero father, he learns that his father had passed away and actually had a ton of money, so that him and his brother Charles are now very, very rich. But Charles reveals that his father probably stole that money, and that money is probably theirs illegally. And the boys have almost irreconcilable differences as they go to live on and begin to farm, until one day Kathy Ames comes into this picture, (laughs) and we go through this tragic backstory with her. But she's a woman that's so deceitful and tempting, she tricks Adam into taking care of her in her vulnerable state as she had just been beaten, and then knocks him out by drugging his drink and then sleeps with his brother. End part one. <laughs> and she's your favorite character, isn't she? <laughs> she is. I, I like her. And I'll the get temptress into why I like her. serpent. <laughs> All right. Part two, we enter the 20th century, right? So now time's passed, you know, significantly, very fast. And yeah, like Adam 40, and Kathy, years. Adam and Kathy move to California. Kathy is pregnant and attempts to get rid of the pregnancy but she ends up having twin boys duality once more. She shoots Adam with a gun and runs away, leaving him with the kids. Adam survives the shot. The local sheriff, Horace Quinn, investigates the shooting and finds Kathy now goes by the name Kate in a nearby whorehouse. And at this whorehouse, run by Faye, Kate earns Faye's trust and eventually murders her so that she can have the will and own everything that she owns. (laughs) Meanwhile, Adam is raising the twins... And even at 15 months, has not given them any names yet. Strange. Tell me more. In part three, 1911. Samuel tells Adam he's got to move on, man. <laughs> we get the Tim Shell speech from Lee. Sam Hamilton mm. dies. Adam visits the whorehouse where Kate says the kids aren't his. Aaron and Cal grow up. Adam favors Aaron. <laughs> Aaron is mm. wide-eyed and believes his mother went to heaven while his mischievous and driven brother... Uh, finds out that that's not so true. <laughs> not the even boys, close. The boys soon meet Abracadabra. I mean, Abra Bacon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's like my favorite character. <laughs> <laughs> Moving into part four, Adam loses most of his money in a failed lettuce refrigeration scheme. <laughs> <laughs> that always cracked me up. I like that uh, one. Cal decides yeah. to make it back uh, through Bean Futures. When he presents his father with the money, Adam is disappointed that he had profited off the farmers. Cal is frustrated and reveals to Aaron that their mother is alive and in a whorehouse. (laughs) This destroys Aaron, basically, where he runs off and joins the army and he dies while at war. Adam has a stroke and it leaves him paralyzed. But Lee has Adam give Cal his fatherly blessing. And that's when Adam ends with the Tim Shell and that we all have a choice on our actions. So very Hmm. quick plot summary. And I know I left out some stuff with with Kathy and with Lee, they're the great characters, but high level, those are the main beats that, that thrust the story forward. 
for sure. I mean, there's a lot of other side characters and there's a lot of other siblings and, and daughters and sons and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, that's it that's kinda, a good highlights. It kind of breaks my heart because when I was breaking it down, I was like, huh, Hamilton's weren't super important to the plot in this one. <laughs> like they drove out a lot of things from the characters, but they themselves weren't main forces where um, I can see how it's his autofictional and they brought a lot of humanity and humor to the story, but it's really the Trask, the symbol family that were driving the narrative. We've talked about before of taking certain novels by other authors and seeing if you could pull out elements, if the, the novel would still make sense or still be enjoyable. It would be very interesting to pull out chunks of the Hamilton storyline, streamline it, knock this down to three or 400 pages. Would it still be as impactful and as enjoyable, I wonder? I don't know, because they bring a lot to the humanity of the characters in this, right? I mean, even from the opening chapters, we talk about how d duality is immediately introduced, even with the mountains, right? The way that the Gabalans represent the, the light, and you have the Santa Alicias, which are the evil. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing those correctly. People from California, you can correct me. But it immediately <laughs> sets up the duality also between good and evil, right? Exactly. And I think part of Steinbeck's point to this is... When we think of some genres like fantasy, some people aren't always enthralled by that this character's so good and this character's so bad. Like that's kind of like a common criticism of Tolkien. You know, whether you agree with it or not, it's another thing, but that's a criticism is, well, this character's all good and never bad, and this character's all bad and never good. I think Steinbeck is actually kind of warning us about the turmoil and mixture that people have. And we even have those quotes where Adam Trask is talking about how it's bad that Kathy only sees evil. Like He's like, that's a limitation that you have. You could be better, not just as a person, but you could be better if you learn to see both sides. But that's also, Adam kind of experiences this too, where he only sees good. And that's part of his blindness, that he only sees the good, that he doesn't understand the evil that's lurking in people, and he can't comprehend why people do some of those things. And it kind of creates this husk of a man to the point where he sees no sides, and he just becomes empty and almost kind of nihilistic and thinking that there's no point in life. I think that's where a lot of people take the story as being, quote, simple, is that you have these very complex characters, but they're acting out these very um, in-depth and very complicated aspects of life, but Steinbeck simplifies it so much of that idea of just pure good and pure evil. But I, and besides maybe Kathy, I think everybody else in the story is a little bit of both. And that's kind of the point of the story that I feel like you are supposed to maybe pull out a little bit of, and that you're supposed to kind of see yourself in both the Hamiltons and the Trasks and that Kathy is the only like true 100%. And even arguably she's not, I mean, she, it's pretty close, though, to just being, you know, pure evil. Well, another way to think about it is Kathy presented evil to people, right? She she was very clearly one that would cause hatred, jealousy, scorn in people's hearts. And that presents people with an opportunity to act upon that. But she doesn't ever force someone to make that choice, uh, obviously, she does take advantage and kills her parents and does some really bad things to characters that aren't even in the plot. But to your point about these characters, I wonder if the way that Steinbeck, you know, some of us, the way we're influenced, we're influenced by our family, our friends, right? I'm not the same person I am had I never met you, right? Like, you have influenced me as a person. Aww, and I wonder 
You can kind <laughs> of <think>. view the, ha- <laughs> but you can kind of view the Hamiltons in the same way in this story, where they're almost guiding the Trasks in certain respects, like some of these scenes, and I think they're kind of in the same way that a family plays a role, like family played a role in Steinbeck's life and guiding him and teaching him the ways. The Hamiltons are almost kind of that for this story too. The way they take them in, they help bring the the twins into this world, like in terms of the the midwife and such, in terms of helping them set land and, and where to drill for wells and stuff like that, not necessarily charge money and make it economic. They were doing it for the friendship, for the relationship side of things. And we're going to get into the economic things in a while. But I almost view the Hamiltons as 100% necessary as like the Yodas, the guiding light. And I just want to say one quote real quick. I don't very much believe in blood, said Samuel. I think when a man finds good or bad in his children, he is seeing only what he planted in them after they cleared the womb. For me, I guess it says a lot about me is I look at it almost as the inverse. And maybe that's the point of what Steinbeck is trying to get across is that you can pick either side or both sides or neither side is I look at it as that the Hamiltons are being corrupted by the Trasks and that if you aren't due diligent and you aren't, you know, a good X, Y, and Z, or you, you aren't faithful or whatever, uh, you can become corrupted and that, you know, family, money, power, all these things can corrupt you. Uh, and that, that Steinbeck's, I don't know, I, I, I struggled with which side I felt was like more influential the other. And I, I felt like at the end, for me personally, it was the Trasks corrupting more of the story than the Hamiltons bringing up the the other side. And that's probably just more of my pessimistic view. Well, <laughs> well, we know you. We know I'm the optimist, but at the same time, me being the optimist, <laughs> I don't disagree with that statement, right? We have a quote from Lee talking about the truth, you know, like how the fact that they're hiding that their mother was still alive from the twins, and he says, "It's the lie I'm thinking of. It might infect everything. If they ever found out you lied to them about this, the true things will suffer." And I think that's an excellent counterbalance to the previous statement that is evil infectious? Can we corrupt others? To your point, you can try to guide, but at the same time, can that person be polluted? And I think the answer has to be yes, doesn't it? I mean, we we see people making incorrect choices all the time in life. And I think that here we see a lot of the brothers and sisters trying to make positive choices and they end up um, in some very precarious situations and a lot of the siblings die off in the story as a result. So, yeah. Right. Right. And I think, you know, putting this in with the structure of the Bible is interesting too. One, because of the name's Adam, right? And and Adam is always associated with man's first fall, right? That created, quote unquote, you know, an, an, an end of life. It created humanity. And then along comes Cain and he warps it forever with the idea of choice and choosing evil in a sense. And I think that's counterbalanced really well with Kathy, where I wonder if as readers, it it's not wrong to think Kathy's pure evil. I think she's pretty evil, right? <laughs> but at the same time, but at the same time, to the point of Tim Shell, thou mayest, the decision is yours. And my understanding is that might have been <laughs> slightly warped a little bit from its original meaning and, and pronunciation is my understanding. But hey, I'm, I'm not an expert on that. And that's not the point of this channel. But the point is that choice. Right. And here's what's interesting. As a reader, if you looked at Kathy, you're like, she's evil. She's making them do these things. 
she didn't force Charles to sleep with her, right? That's a choice right. Charles made. And, and I think this goes to that point of how evil can corrupt. She put a very tempting choice out here. She didn't make the person chose it, choose it. That person chose it themselves. And that goes along with thou mayest. The choice is always ours. And sometimes we find ourselves choosing evil. Even if we, a lot of times we choose good, you can see how evil we can be sometimes. And for me with Kathy in this is that, okay, so we have the cho these choices like you talked about, and Kathy's giving people these evil choices. She's making evil choices herself. But as you just said a second ago, there's always free will. And is Kathy beyond redemption? Can she make a good choice every once in a while? And so now is she no longer pure evil? And that just brings out the duality that's inside of all of us. You can tell those little tiny white lies and does that make you not pure good anymore? Mm. Humans are <laughs> caught in their lives and their thoughts, in their hungers and ambitions, and their avarice and the cruelty, and their kindness and generosity too, and a lot of good and evil. I think this is the only story we have, and that it occurs on all levels of feeling and intelligence, virtue and vice, or warp and woof of our first consciousness. And they will be the fabric of our last. And this despite any changes we may impose on field and river and mountain, on economy and manners, there is no other story. A man, after he has brushed off the dust and chips of his life, will have left only the hard, clean questions. Was it good or was it evil? Have I done well or ill? And that right there could have just been a poem of this story and really captured, I think, a lot of the core of it. But I feel like what East of Eden does so well is I read this statement of, will I look back on my life and have I done well or have I done ill? And I'm like, I got to get up and do some charity or I got to go to an orphanage. Like I got to do something good right now. Like it, this question right here makes me want to be a better person. And I can't help but reinforce that when when anger overcomes me or when something so tempting or tries to seduce me in a way to do what would be considered evil, again, a religious or man-made term, if you will. But I think we all at the core of our hearts, whether you're religious or not, understand what that means. And this book is one that makes me realize that I tend to blame the evil. I blame the Cathy's, but I made the choice. And isn't that worse that I'm blaming Kathy? when I'm the bad guy. I think it comes down a lot with like Charles and Adam through for a lot of us, you have that midlife crisis and then you get to the end of your life and you think, did I leave this place better or worse off for the 80 or hundred years that I got here? And for some of us, we have to turn to God and some of us, we turn to our families and some of us turn inward. And when we turn inward, sometimes it's a hard look in the mirror and you made some poor choices, but that doesn't make you pure evil. Uh, doesn't make you pure good. Makes you human. All right, let me switch subjects on you here to capitalism. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm teaching econ this year. Let's do this. <laughs> Didn't see that coming, did you? Well, yeah. Okay. Oh, man. Now, we have read Steinbeck before. I don't know if you guys out there who are watching this right now have. This is nothing new to Steinbeck. Like, a lot of his novels talk about this. The Pearl, The Grapes of Wrath, to an extent of Mice and Men. 
economic distribution, wealth, what we do with it, our, our noblesse oblige, how we spend it, very core to the morality and choices we make in a Steinbeck novel. Fair starting point. Oh, for sure. I mean, he throws in the specific dollar amounts, and he makes it very clear and obvious that there is an agenda besides just the religious references. So let's think about this. He started writing this in 1948, finished, published 1952, right? Went through divorce, went through divorce uh, lost his best friend. Just post-World War II, a lot of people are struggling with the meaning of life. But also there's this war that's happening with, with the Red Scare, with Russia at the time, with communism coming in and anti-religion, basically the anti-Steinbeck. Well, Steinbeck was kind of, I guess, there was some social... Anti-American. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, but here's Steinbeck, who, who's an American, right? And he can't just come right out and be like, well, I'm not totally with capitalism because you know, like the whole country would turn against him because that's just the, the political world at the time, right? Exactly. But he paints these characters very interestingly because he'll take Charles, who's the hardworking farmer, right? Yep. To me, he's painted like the capitalist who will do whatever it takes to win, right? When he is competitive with Adam, he will literally beat his brother to a bloody pulp just to win, when he's a farmer, does he really need the money after all the money Cyrus left him? Nope. He does it because he's just trying to gain more, to get more wealth, to acquire more. There's a very famous line for farmers called live poor, die rich, right? And he's interesting because he is living poor, right? He has ridiculous amounts of money, but he lives poor, but dies filthy rich. I think what Steinbeck's trying to do here is connect the idea of greed to evil a little bit through this capitalistic view of life. But he's got to be very subtle about it because the economy's booming. We just got out of the Great Depression. People like all these new toys. So it is a product of a time that he has to be conscientious of how he's writing this to the American public. Agreed. And I think he does a good job because how does Charles come off when he's on his well, we don't see him on his deathbed, but we find out that he's dead. But you find out that he's very isolated. He's separated. He doesn't have the people or love in his life the way that some other characters do. And I think he's doing that picture to show you that money doesn't, you know, all that glitters isn't gold, right? Like, <laughs> it's, it's the idea that the sidewalks, the roads are paved in gold in heaven. So it doesn't matter how much money you have here. You can't take it with you. And Cal, I think, is arguably also a capitalist, right? I... I I think it's hard to argue that he's not because his brother Aaron is like content just to be like, I'm here, right? He's the religious. I'm going to live, you know, more spiritual life. And Cal will tell his brothers, like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to win. I will do whatever it takes to get ahead, just like Charles, right? Yes. But he has the advantage of getting a little bit of that business acumen and getting together with Will Hamilton to do the beans trade, the beans futures, which is basically what made him a ton of money. But what does he do? Instead of being miserly with it instead of instead of dying alone and just protecting the money and constantly trying to build more that that's one picture of a capitalist another picture is him where what he does is he kind of has that using that money for something particular in this case a little bit of philanthropy a little bit of buying your father's love is one way to look at it where he tries to use money to solve the divide between him and adam if you will or to prove himself. You could also kind of view it that way. That look, see, look what I did, dad. 
Well, I think this also plays into epiphany of, of the choice, right? He gets to choose what to, he, he can do with that money, and he does try to do better by humanity with it. And I think that is probably more aligned with what Steinbeck's thoughts were at the time because he did believe in a little bit more of like that equality and the noblesse oblige that he's living it out, but maybe not in the best way. But I think this leads to the epiphany of choice for him because we have the final parts of the whole book with Tim Shell. And we realize that his father finally gives him the blessing. Again, another biblical aspect of things, right? Because when we talk about Esau and Jacob, you know, that that fight was over the father's blessings, right? And in heritage, you had Charles and Adam go through the problem of heritage with their father's money. And now it coming down to Cal and Aaron and, and Cal's like, well, how do I repay this? So again, it, it all kind of comes full circle to me, I think, that these characters are exploring how, the choice of what we do with this wealth too. And that choice is going to be your legacy. And then some people struggle with that choice. And uh, I feel like they kind of flounder, right? A little bit here and there through the end. Yeah, it yeah. kind of like ends on the epiphany of, of Tim Shell, if you will. But I, yeah. while we bring up this example, there are other examples, right? Will Hamilton was the most capitalist of all of the, the Hamiltons. And what happened to him? He was the most estranged of all of them. He was the most disconnected from all the other Hamilton children, I would say. Doesn't he move off to Oregon? <laughs> so to me, I, I think if you take it and look at at the time, I don't know. I, I need to read, you know, that, that journal book, you know, cover to cover. But to me, this is part of Steinbeck's agenda. You know, we need to have the right choice with our money. <laughs> you can't just go to the 1%, right? <laughs> like, no, yeah. Well, well, I think that he... he yeah, well, I, what he's trying to say is that religion and capitalism are good in balance, that anything or too much of anything can corrupt you somehow. And I like the way he uses this, too, even because if you have you ever read his Nobel speech when he when he won the Nobel Prize for literature? Oh, no, I haven't read his speech. Yeah, he's he's got a very Faulknerian comment in there where, you know. This is an interesting time in world history because these writers have this experience where technology never slows down, right? But the drastic change in the 20th century of technology, it's unparalleled the quality of life, the way things are done, moving from animals and horses to get around to cars. The change in technology was massive for the 20th century, right? And he was very leery about that and, and talked about in his Nobel speech about how that technology has stolen, quote-unquote, some of the allure, the mysticism of religion. And now man's taking his own, you know, reality into his own hands, perhaps. And I love the way he does in this story where he combines, I think, even this concept of technology coming along and religion, did you notice that the the what I'm going to call the sermon on the Ford? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what happens here is they're using a ton of biblical terms when they're talking about that Ford car. They're trying to get that to work in terms of technology and stuff like that. We have a quote where he says, "Oh Lord," said the man disgustedly, with a courageous gathering of the more of his moral forces, he moved with decision towards the car. Might as well as get started, he said. God knows how long it's going to take. 
if you ain't studied. And to me, this was very symbolic, where he's saying, what's your manual for life? What, what You need to make decisions and have a structure. It doesn't have to be religion, but you need to read the instructions for your car to understand how it works in order to move forward. They repeat things such as calling out the manual, the litany of the manual. So they're going to use a ton of religious terms in this scene as they have to repeat things over and over and over again in the same way that religion teaches people to repeat hymns, to repeat things that you know are forms of worship, if you will. And I don't think what I like about Steinbeck is he isn't saying you have to be religious or if you're, if you're not religious, you're not going to understand my writing. And it's not didactic the way that I think, you know, Ralph Connor is, for example, that we're reading right now. <laughs> to me, this is saying he, you need a rule book for your life because you're going to have to make a lot of choices. And I think this goes back to the brothers Karamazov problem too, of if you don't have a rule book, whatever that rule book is, right? Otherwise you're your own God. And it's every man for himself. There needs to be some type of a, a way for you to make decisions of what's right or wrong in your life because you're going to be presented with a lot of choices. We could also take it back to duality, right? That throughout the novel, we're always presented with, with two sides. And Steinbeck is saying, you have a choice of religion or technology. You're going to live your life through one of these. And I think he kind of nailed it on the head mm. that we're starting to gradually move towards what he feared of our technology is so instrumental into our life and that people turn to it before their religion. Hmm. So overall, I think one of the most approachable, beautiful, gorgeous pieces of writing I've ever experienced. I've never read this story before, but I can promise you it won't be the last. I will definitely read this one again. And I highly recommend if you have been on the edge of actually reading East of Eden, you have got to get this in your brain great experience 10 out of 10 for me when people always say the most powerful word in the english language is two letters and they say it's if i always like oh wow that is pretty profound but i would challenge after reading this book that tim shell is just as important or powerful for us of how to live your life and I would say that's kind of what we're all looking for, right? Is how are we going to live our lives? So I would say subscribe, but thou mayest subscribe if you would be so kind right now. We'll leave a playlist <laughs> for other Steinbeck uh, talks down below. We love him. Guys, we post videos every Monday and Thursday. Please make sure you hit that subscribe button to join us on the journey. Una out. Peace. <laughs>